Chapter 9 of The House with the Twisting Passage by Marion St. John Webb This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zanusha The House with the Twisting Passage by Marion St. John Webb Chapter 9 Black Jack's Story Hello, shipmate, cried Black Jack. Come aboard me, Arty. All hands on deck, and how are we this evening? He beamed at Jenny as the little girl appeared at his open door. Jack, my lad, he went on, addressing himself. Can't you find a pet mint for the company? Aha! Here we are. Now you just try one of these, shipmate, and if they're not the best pet mints you've ever struck, well, my name's not by no manner of means what it is. He produced a crumpled paper bag from one of his pockets and held it out to Jenny. She advanced hesitatingly into the room and took a peppermint from the bag. Thank you very much, she said, and as she tasted it, they're lovely. And what are we doing with ourselves this evening, shipmate? inquired Black Jack. Nothing particular, said Jenny. Same here, grinned Black Jack. Well, it's clear to me that our ship's company has got nothing particular to do this evening. I might as well tell you that tale I promised, eh? Oh, please, if you would said Jenny eagerly. It was what she had been hoping for when she came past the door. Delighted, said Black Jack, only I shall make a bit of noise, I warn you. I can't tell a tale without doing the actions, if you know what I mean, so if I kick the coal bucket over, and scatter the fire irons, and thump the table, and tear the window curtains down, you mustn't be surprised. It's the only way I can tell a story. Jenny's smiling little face grew serious. She wouldn't mind, of course, if Black Jack tore the window curtains down. But what would Aunt Abby say? I'll cut the rain beating against the window, said Black Jack. Just the right sort of night for the tale I'm going to tell you. Here, have another peppermint, and gather round the fire. Hand me the poker, matey, and I'll soon make it blaze up. That's better. And now I'll begin. The Tattooed Man Twenty years ago, on just such another night as this, the wind moaning and howling, and the rain coming down in torrents, I was walking along a little back street in Dieppe, that's in France, shipmate, you know, on my way down to the quay, to my ship. I'd been sent ashore on an errand and was hurrying back as I'd heard a clock strike eight and my ship was due to start at the half hour. I stepped into the doorway of what I took to be an empty shop for a moment to light a cigarette. As the match flared, I happened to look up and straight through the glass door of the shop. Inside, by the empty, dusty counter, was sitting a man, quite still and all alone. I was taken aback. 
What in the world of wonders is he doing in there? I thought to myself, but said nothing, and my match went out. I struck another match, and gave a start as I saw that the man had got up and come close to the other side of the glass door, and was glaring through at me. Jack, I thought to myself, this is no place for you. I should make myself scarce, my lad, if I was you. Which I did. But I hadn't gone more than hundred yards when I heard someone running after me, and the next moment a hand caught hold of my arm. Here Black Jack caught hold of a handful of red plush tablecloth, and slid it along so that it hung half off the table. I wheeled round and saw by the light of a baker's shop window that it was the man who had just been looking at me through the glass doors. I faced him squarely. He was an ugly man, with a cruel, thin mouth, and a red mark right across one cheek, as if he'd been in a fight, I thought. He was a bit out of breath with running. Are you going by that ship to England? He nodded towards the quay. I told him I was. You're just the man I want, he said hurriedly, looking over his shoulder, and then back at me again. It's fate. You're stopping in that doorway, just when... But never mind that. Do you want to earn twenty golden sovereigns for yourself, without any trouble? He asked in a quick, bewildered sort of way. He could see how I felt about it by the way my mouth dropped open in surprise. He put his hand in his pocket and drew out some gold pieces. When you reach the other side, will you get any leave? He asked anxiously. I nodded. We've just finished a long voyage, I said. It was only an accident we called in here. I shall get leave on the other side. Good, good, he said. Then you will have no difficulty in doing what I ask of you. All I want you to do is take this small packet, he went on, and when you get to England, deliver it with your own hands to the person whose name and address is written on the outside. Only it must be delivered without fail before the end of this month. I will give you plenty of money to pay expenses, but you must promise me on your word of honour as a British sailor. Of course this touched me, and he knew it would the wily old bird that he was. So I gave him my solemn word of honour as a British sailor that I would deliver the packet safely to the man whose name was written outside it. You must not part with it to anyone but this man. I must make sure that only he gets it. Otherwise I might as well send it through the post. You may think it odd that I ask you, a stranger, the ugly man continued, but it is my only chance, and the matter is very urgent. He glanced quickly over his shoulder again. Then he went on, speaking rapidly, to tell me how I should recognise the man to whom I was to give the packet. You cannot fail to find him at the address on the packet and you cannot fail to recognise him because he has the head of a parrot tattooed on the back of his left hand, he said. You know what tattoo marks are, don't you, shipmate? It's a sort of picture, drawn or rather pricked, onto the skin of your arm or hand, 
or anywhere you like, with a blue ink or dye, and it won't ever come off, so that you might keep on washing your hands, if they were tattooed, for a hundred years, and it would only be a waste of soap. The tattoo marks would still be there at the end. Well, my ugly friend counted out twenty golden sovereigns into the palm of his hand, and I thought to myself, Jack, my lad, twenty sovereigns is twenty sovereigns, and not to be sneezed at, as the saying is. And though I didn't like the look of the man, there can be no harm in doing him this little service, I thought. It seemed simple enough. So I took the packet, and I took the twenty sovereigns, and I gave him my word of honour again, and I turned away. But just as he was going, he caught me suddenly by the arm. Black Jack leant forward and made a sudden grab at the back of a chair near him, which gave Jenny a jump. And thrusting his ugly face close to mine, he said, If you don't keep your word, I shall know, and then look out for yourself. Your life won't be worth a brass farthing. There was such a threatening note in his voice, and such an evil look in his eye that, well, I tell you, shipmate, my legs felt all at once as if they were made of jelly. They felt all a shake round the knees. Then, before I could move or say a word, he had gone. I made my way down to the quay, feeling a bit muddled-like, and got aboard my ship just in time, and we were soon under way for the English coast. At the first opportunity I got, I looked at the name and address on the packet. Mr. Silas Trudge at the Golden Peacock Inn, Lyme Regis, Dorset, I read. Dorset? I said to myself. That's a tidy stretch from London, Jack, my lad. My old folk live just on the outskirts of London, and I buy it. However, I'd given my word, so there was no help for it but to go. Yet that night, during the crossing over, which was very rough and stormy, I kept thinking of the stranger with the ugly face and queer manner, and I wished I hadn't promised to do what he wanted. I got the same kind of feeling you get when you guess there's a bit of bad luck awaiting round the corner for you. Well, anyway, shipmate, after we had landed in England, and I had been home to my old mother for a couple of days, I went off one morning down to Dorsetshire. I thought I'd better go before I'd spent all my money and hadn't got the fare left. It was late afternoon, getting dusk, when I got to Lyme Regis, which is a quaint little sea-coast place with streets going all up and downhill, and out into the sea, instead of a pier, runs a long curved sort of wall, very wide across, and built all of stonework. This is called the Cobb. I found the Golden Peacock Inn down on the front, not far from the land end of the Cobb. It was a neat little inn, with cheery curtains of a golden yellow colour at the windows. I walked past once or twice, as if taking a stroll, and then, when I'd got over feeling a bit nervous, I went in and sat down, and ordered something to drink. There was only one other person in there having a drink, and he was a big, thick-set man with a dark skin and big black moustache, and with one hand and arm bound up in a sling. He was sitting on a low wooden bench by a roaring fire. I gave him good evening, and he nodded to me, but did not speak. 
So I waited till my drink appeared, and then I said to the landlord, I'm a stranger in these parts, matey, just back from China, and I've come down here to find a man named Silas Trudge. Could you oblige by telling me where I shall find him? The man on the bench looked up immediately, and before the landlord could reply, he said, Silas Trudge, did you say? Well, you've had your journey for nothing. You won't find him. He's dead. Dead? I echoed stupidly, looking from the man to the landlord. The landlord pursed up his lips and gravely nodded his head. Then he narrowed his eyes in a queer way. Tell him about Trudge, said the landlord, looking not at me, but at the other man. The man on the bench cleared his throat. Trudge was drowned three weeks ago, just off the coast here. His boat went down. I was silent. I did not know what to say, nor what to do. I knew him well, the man went on, and if there is anything I can do for you, if there was any message you had for him, perhaps I can help you. Trudge and me was great friends, weren't we? He turned to the landlord. None better, said the landlord. I hesitated. What ought I to do? I have been told not to give the packet to anyone but Silas Trudge himself, but I had never thought of his being dead. What ought I to do? I looked up and found the man and the landlord watching me closely. Hello, Jack, I said to myself. Steady on, my lad. There's something fishy here. And I decided suddenly that I would trust neither of them, for the moment at any rate. An idea had flashed into my head. As Silas Trudge was dead, I would find out what was inside the packet before confiding in his friend. It might be to my advantage to know what the packet contained. I searched about in my mind for a likely story to tell the two men who were waiting for me to speak. Has Silas Trudge got any near relatives living? I asked cautiously. "'None at all,' said the man on the bench. "'I'm what you might call his nearest, being his best friend.' "'Oh, well,' I said, trying to look very simple. "'I might as well tell you. "'It seems to me to be nothing particular, "'only a message that an old friend sent him, a friend in London. "'As I happened to be passing through Lyme Regis, "'I undertook to look him up and tell him. The man fidgeted uneasily in his seat. A friend in London, he said. I wonder if I know him. I know most of Trudge's friends. I was beginning to get into a hole, but once having started the story, I was bound to finish it. I cast about in my mind for some person whom this friend of Trudge's would be unlikely to know. Having recently had a good deal to do with Chinamen, I fixed on one of those. His name is Ching, I began. The man on the bench turned very white, and I saw that his hand was shaking a bit. He gazed over my head at the landlord, 
who I think must have made some sign to him, as the man turned suddenly to me. "'What was the message?' he asked quietly. I could feel that I'd got onto dangerous ground, and utterly wished I'd never started the story. "'You see what comes of telling one lie, shipmate. You have to go on telling more to hide the first one and cover it up. It isn't worth it. You take my word for it. My troubles began from the minute I told that first lie. The message, I said, getting a bit scared at the expression on his face, was simply this. Tell him I'm ready. I was rather proud of myself for a moment for thinking of something so easy, but the next moment my pride gave way to astonishment at the queer glance the man gave me. Ready for what? he inquired in a calm voice. That's all the message. That's all I know, I said. Well, I can't make head or tail of it. It's evidently some little business of trudges that I know nothing about. I'm sorry, I can't be of any use to you after all, said the man. Was I mistaken, or was that an amused gleam in his eye? I had a feeling that the fellow was actually laughing at me. But why? What had I said? Had he seen through me and guessed I was merely trying to put him off the scent? I felt very puzzled and a bit worried. After this, the man, who told me his name was Bruff, got very friendly and wanted me to keep on having more to drink. He suggested that I stayed the night at the Golden Peacock. But I did not like the narrowed eyes of the landlord, so I told one more lie and said I had friends at Charmouth, which was the next village. Bruff seemed loath to let me go, and did his best to detain me as long as possible. But at length I got away, after bidding him and the landlord a friendly good night. I mentioned as I shook hands with Bruff that I was sorry to see he had hurt his other hand and arm. It was a mere nothing, he said, a slight sprain. It would soon be well again. Once outside, I started briskly off in the direction of Charmouth. Not that I wanted to go there, but I was obliged to make a pretense of going that way, as I was supposed to have friends in that town. I walked quickly past the little houses by the seafront, and turning inland, took the Charmouth Road. At the first inn I came to, I went in and inquired if they had a room for the night. Fortunately they had, so I went straight up to my room, locked myself in, and by the light of a couple of candles that stood on the dressing-table, proceeded to examine the packet I had been carrying about for the last few days. The packet was carefully done up in thick white paper, and sealed with red sealing-wax, in all sorts of unexpected places on the back and on the front. "'Steady, Jack, my lad,' I said. "'If once you break these seals... I sat and considered for a while. It was no concern of mine. Better leave it alone. I might learn something I didn't want to know if I opened this packet. On the other hand, Silas Trudge was dead. What was I to do with the packet? I did not know the name of the man it had come from. And what was it that he had said? If I didn't keep my word and deliver it to Silas Trudge, he would know and then I was to look out for myself. 
My life wouldn't be worth a brass farthing, it wouldn't. I mopped my forehead with my handkerchief. I began to feel very uncomfortable. How would he know? I asked myself. Perhaps if I opened the packet I should find out, and so save myself. Clearly it was best to open the packet. I broke the seal on one of the flaps. From the packet I drew forth a number of tightly folded pages, which on opening out I discovered to be all over strange signs and words that I could make neither head nor tail of. I looked at the pages this way and that way, sideways and upside down, but it was no good. I could make nothing of it at all. Here's a pretty kettle of fish, my lad, I said to myself. All this here is written in a sort of secret code, I suppose. Now what are you going to do? I turned the pages over from beginning to end again, but there was nothing doing. Nothing but signs and writings that had no sense nor reason to me. Slowly, and while I was thinking, I broke the seal on the other flap and spread the white paper cover out wide. Inside one corner of the cover was a scrap of writing in blue pencil. And glory be, it wasn't written in code. It was evidently a postscript written at the last moment and ran a little boat. First of month, ten o'clock. As they don't know you, show the parrot and they will tell you news. For half an hour I sat with my elbows on the dressing table, reading and re-reading and puzzling over this message. At the end of that time I banged my fist down on the table. Got it, my lad, I said. Black Jack suited the action to the word and brought his fist down with a crash on the table beside Jenny. I'll tell you what I'd made it out to be, shipmate. The curved line was meant to be the cob. It took me a rare time to spot this, I'll admit. And so I read that Silas Trudge was to go to the end of the cob at ten o'clock, at night I suppose, where he would find a small boat. To the people in the boat he was to show his left hand, with the parrot tattooed on it, and then they would tell him the news, whatever that might be. But now Silas Trudge was dead, and he could not keep the appointment on the cob. What was it all about? What was it for? And tomorrow was the first of the month. What a pity. Stay a moment, I thought. A sudden idea had struck me. Why shouldn't I go down on the cob tomorrow night and hear the news? As they don't know you, the message ran, and I could easily draw a blue parrot on the back of my left hand. I knew something about tattoo work, but I wouldn't tattoo it on properly, or else I shouldn't be able to wash it off again afterward. But I would make it look like a real tattoo, and at night time it would pass without suspicion. Supposing it were not night time, but ten o'clock in the morning. Well, anyway, I wasn't going at that time, to be seen by Braff or the landlord from the windows of the Golden Peacock. Besides, with all this caution, it was sure to be at night. I would go at ten o'clock tomorrow night, I made up my mind. The hint of mystery about the whole thing appealed to me. No harm could come to me, I thought. I should only be going to the end of the cob, 
I wasn't much of an actor, I knew, but I reckoned I could play my part well enough, so long as they had never seen the real Silas, to keep them unsuspicious until I'd got well away from Lyme Regis and was back in London again, after which I should soon be on my ship and far away from the whole business. It was a rather silly thing to do when you come to think it over, but there you are. I was feeling a bit flat and wanted a snip of excitement. Anyway, I carried out my plan. The next day I stayed at the inn and spent my time in getting the parrot fixed up all right on my left hand, taking care not to let the landlord or anyone about the place see it. The evening turned out a bit rough, a big gale springing up, and every now and then the rain would come spattering down. I set out from the inn on the Charmouth Road about nine o'clock, and was soon in Lyme Regis. I was much too early, so made my way down to the shore, and sheltered in a bathing-out arrangement there. It was so dark that there was no chance of my being seen by my friend Bruff, if I did not go too near the Golden Peacock. I particularly wanted to avoid Bruff, of course. As ten o'clock drew near, I approached the cob, and, climbing up onto it, walked along to the end. It was hard work keeping a foothold on such a blustery night, but I fought my way along to the end and stood still, looking out into the darkness. Below me the sea whirled and hissed against the great stone walls of the cob. My eyes soon grew used to the strange darkness of the sea, and I gazed steadily out, but there was no sign of a boat. You're an ass, Jack, my lad, I said to myself. How if it isn't the first of next month instead of this month? Or perhaps first of month is only another secret code and means something altogether different. And I looked back shoreward at the twinkling little lights in the houses and thought of the warm, comfortable rooms behind those cheery windows. And I called myself ten times an ass for staying out there in the wind and rain when I might be sitting in warmth and comfort by an inn fire. What was I doing this for? All for what? I turned and took a pace or two backward along the cob to all those beckoning lights, then turned again and looked once more to see. A little way out, and coming toward the cob, I saw a shadow, darker than the black of the water. Another second, and the light of a lantern gleamed from the side, and I saw it was a small boat. My heart went bumpity-bump, which Black Jack illustrated with a series of resounding thumps on the table. Then, springing to his feet, he clambered up onto the table, and, pretending it was the cob, stood at one end gazing out over the hearth-rug. Jenny sat looking up at him, her eyes wide with astonishment and interest, as he proceeded to act the next part of his tale, getting more and more excited and violent in his movements as time went on. The boat seemed to be having difficulties on account of the rough sea, but in a few minutes she got round the side of the cob where the water was a bit calmer, and I stood and watched while they got her up close to the wall and made her fast with a rope to an iron ring. Close by this ring some stone steps led from the water up onto the cob. I could now see that there were two figures in the boat. One of them, 
a tall man, picked up the lantern, while the other, a little stumpy man, pulled the boat round near the steps. The tall man scrambled out onto them and climbed up onto the cob. They had evidently seen me waiting there. I suppose my black figure would stand out against the grey-black of the skyline. They may have howled me, but I did not hear them. I could not hear anything but the wind and the sea. When the tall man reached my side, he raised the lantern so that it shone on my face. Who are you? His voice came through the roar of the wind. For answer, I held out my left hand. He looked down at the parrot drawn on the back of it. Then he nodded his head. What news? I asked him, shouting to make myself heard. All's well so far, was his reply. The ship passes at midnight, and we're prepared. We've got to the chart, and know the exact spot where we are to get close alongside, sir. He won't have far to swim, and then we make for the caves. And you'll have arranged the rest, sir. It was my turn to nod my head. I had to let him think I had arranged the rest, of course. But what a hole I was getting into. What on earth was he talking about? What were they all up to? Who was going to swim? And what arrangements was I supposed to have made? If only I had been able to read that secret code letter. While I was trying to make up my mind what to say next, the tall man spoke again. We may have a bit of a job getting out there, so hadn't we better start at once, sir, if you'll follow me? What was this? They were expecting me to go along in the boat with them. Not if I knew it. Why, when they found out I had made no arrangements, they'd suspect me, perhaps. And then what chance would I stand against the two of them, out in a little boat on a stormy sea? It would be Jack for the fishes, without a doubt. What I should have done next, I do not know. But as the man with the lantern turned toward the steps, a figure came dashing up and almost collided with him. This figure was followed by another, waving his arms excitedly. What have you told him? What have you told him? cried the first figure, seizing the tall man's arm and shaking it, so that the lantern was almost dropped. He's not Silas Trudge. That man's not Silas Trudge. The second figure, who was the little fat man, shouted, flinging himself upon me and gripping my arms. I shook him off and struck out with my fists, and the next minute we were in the thick of a fight. And what a fight it was! On top of that lonely sea wall, all in the dark, save for a glimmer of lantern light, with the wind howling about our ears and the sea lashing away below. I fought hard. I fought desperately, furiously. But it was three to one, and at last between them they got me down and fastened my hands and feet with a bit of rope. Now, what's it all about? gasped the tall man. Give me the lantern, said the figure that had first come dashing up the steps. As he raised the lantern and shone it in my face, I looked at him, blinking, and gradually I saw his face in the darkness behind the lantern. It was Bruff, the man I had seen sitting by the fire at the Golden Peacock, 
Silas Trotty's friend. He seized me roughly by the shoulder and twisted me round so that he could look at my hands tied behind my back. He evidently saw the parrot. Ah, he said, I thought so. Now what's your little game? I suspected you ever since our talk last night. You don't suppose that I let you go away yesterday without having you watched. I know where you stayed last night, and this evening I followed you myself to the cob here, and while you were talking to him, he pointed to the tall man, who seemed bewildered by the turn of events. I slipped down to the boat and made a few inquiries. Now what's your game? Come on, you may as well own up. And this ain't Silas Trudge, you say, said the tall man. But he's got the blue parrot. A bit of soap and water will fetch that off, sneered Bruff. Well, by this time I was feeling fair sick of myself. What an ass I'd been to get mixed up in all this business. I'd had enough of shuffling, so I determined to out with the truth. Although, as a story, it might sound a bit difficult to believe. When I heard from you that Silas Trudge was dead, I finished up. I thought I'd best see what was in the packet so as to know what to do next. I couldn't give it back to the man in Dieppe, and I didn't like to destroy it. Bruff was biting the ends of his black moustache. I think he could see I was telling the truth this time. I see, he said. You're an ass, my friend. But so am I for telling you Trudge was dead, and so causing all this muddle. But I had a reason. Then he held out his left hand, and by the light of the lantern I saw a parrot tattooed on the back of it. This was the hand and arm that had been bound up in the sling yesterday. You? I cried in astonishment. Then why in this world of wonders did you tell me that you were dead? I tell you I had a private reason. A reason for telling any stranger who might inquire for me at that moment that I was dead. It was more convenient. I never dreamt you had a message from Dieppe for me, as the man in the boat here tells me you must have had. They were expecting to meet me here tonight. Now we mustn't waste any more time. You'd better hand me over that packet now. But how can I be sure that you are, Silas Trudge, after your telling me yesterday? I began. I can give you proof enough. Besides the parrot, I have papers here in my pocket, and besides, but what need to waste more time in talking? I won't ask you to give me the packet. You can't. I'll take it. Which he proceeded to do, hastily searching me. As soon as he had found the letter, he said, Come along then, boys. There's not a moment to lose. I'll read this in the boat by the light of the lantern. Only we must start at once. I thought for a second that they were going to leave me where I was, and I wondered how I was to make good my escape, tied hand and foot as I was. But Silas Trudge had other plans for me. As for you, he said, looking down at me, you must see that you don't go talking about tonight's little affair until we are through with our work. Here, you boys, give me a hand here and throw him into the boat. We'll take him with us. He may be useful. 
In vain did I protest. I would say nothing. I would not give them away, I promised. I did not know enough about their business to do them any harm, I urge. The fact was, I didn't want to be mixed up in the rest of the night's doings at all. I didn't like the sound of them. That's all right, laughed Trudge. But I'd rather have your company than your promises, my friend. You must come with us. And without more ado, they bundled me down the stone steps and into the rocking boat. Black Jack was on the floor again by this time, pacing up and down between the window and the hearthrug. So we set out to sea. What a journey it was in that crazy little boat on such a stormy night. I thought every second that the boat would turn over and we should all be in the water. As soon as we had got under way, they untied my hands and feet. If we do turn over, said Trudge cheerfully, you might as well have a sporting chance. But now that you're free, you must make yourself useful. Sharp. Which I did. What else could I do? It was three to one, and I had a feeling that Trudge would as soon tip me overboard as have any arguing. For about an hour we tossed about in the boat, making slow headway. My three companions took no notice of me, except when they issued a sharp command for me to do something. The tall man, the little fat man, and I managed the boat, while Trudge kept the lantern by his side, reading the secret code letter. He appeared to be understanding it all right, though it must have been a difficult task reading it with the boat pitching and tossing about so. After a while we came evidently to the right spot for waiting, for we began to tack up and down. Backward and forward, backward and forward we went, Trudge never looking up from the letter, not even when a wave splashed over and filled up his boots. I judged that it must have been about midnight when the little fat man started signalling with his arms to trudge. The girl was so high by this time that it was impossible to hear each other's voices. Trudge put his papers away and shrouded the lantern. Then, struggling upright in the boat, he looked in the direction that the man was pointing. A big vessel was looming up out of the darkness and bearing towards us. We close-hauled our sails and continued to tack to and fro about the same spot. As the ship approached, the tall man managed to steer our little boat well out of the circle of light coming from the big vessel, so that we should escape being seen. Then, as if he wanted us to be seen, Trudge stood up in the boat and flashed the lantern once, twice. Then he shrouded it again. I sat stiffly in my corner of the boat, my eyes fastened on the passing ship, but I did not see anything happen, and so the ship passed and left us in darkness. But Silas Trudge's eyes had seen what mine had missed. No sooner had the vessel passed than he signalled the two men to bring the boat round and head for a certain spot. Then he uncovered the lantern and let it gleam over the water in that direction. A few minutes battling through the sea, and the rays of the lantern picked out something white in the hollow of a wave. It was the head of a man, a man fighting desperately to reach us. It was a marvellously neat bit of work, the way we got up to that man and hauled him into the boat. Almost looks as if they had practised hands at this sort of work, 
I thought to myself. But I hadn't time to think anything else, because it was all hands on deck and no mistake for the next ten minutes. What with a soaking wet man in the bottom of a soaking wet boat, and a soaking wet sail to hoist, and yourself and everybody else soaking wet, well, I may be a sailor and used to the sea, but I prefers to keep it outside the boat I'm in. Anyway, we got going, hoisted the sails, and sped before the gal, shoreward. We got a good bit of buffeting, but at length we beached at a part of the coast that was unknown to me. It looked dark and deserted, great cliffs rising up from the shore. We got the boat up high and dry, and all of us scrambled up the shingly beach. Trudge led the way into a great cave at the foot of one of the cliffs. It was well sheltered, and once again we could hear ourselves speak. A pretty sight we must have looked, all of us dripping wet and our teeth chattering with cold. Silas Trudge set the lantern down on the ground, and as we stood round it his eye lighted on me. He scowled. Now, if it hadn't been for your interference, my friend, he said, there would have been food and drink and dry clothes here. But thanks to you, I got that code letter too late to carry out the instructions it gave. He turned to the man we had rescued from the sea. It did look a sight, to be sure. Shivering and blue with cold, I saw that he had hardly any clothes on. He was a man of medium build, with thin, pointed features. I did not like his face. It was more like a ferret's than a man's face. His black hair lay in long, wet streaks down his forehead. As I looked at him, he put up his hand to his face, as if to feel for a moustache and beard. But he was clean-shaven. Trudge began to explain rapidly to the man what had occurred, meanwhile taking off his big coat and wrapping it round the shivering creature. When the ferret-faced man realised the situation, he burst out into angry abuse at Trudge. "'And what did you go and say you were dead for, you idiot?' he cried. "'Private reasons, I've told you,' said Trudge surlily, looking as if he wanted to take his coat back again. "'I wasn't expecting any message from Dieppe. Not till three months' time. You're twelve weeks too early.' The stranger muttered something about having to come away earlier than he had expected, as things were getting too hot for him. "'Well, how was I to know?' asked Trudge in an aggrieved voice. "'At the present time I'm expecting to hear news from... from China, news which I don't want to hear. And when I saw this sailor fellow I thought he had come with this news, which would have meant that I should have had to do something very dangerous.' something I didn't want to do. I had made up my mind when the message came from my friends in China to send word back that I was dead. It was the only way I could get out of it, and the landlord of the Peacock backed me up. He's a friend of mine. How was I to know that this fellow had come from Dieppe? It was only at the end that I began to suspect he had not come from my Chinese friends. So then I had him followed to find out what he was up to. Well, all I can say is you've muddled the whole thing in a disgusting manner, said Ferret Face. Of course, the upshot of it was that they had a few words, 
and during their quarrel they let out one or two things which they hadn't meant me to know, I'm sure. I gathered they were both members of some shady secret society, as also were the tall man and the fat man, and my ugly Dieppe man too, I suppose. Ferret Face had got into trouble somehow, and the rest of his brother members had had to help him to escape. Everything had worked smoothly right down to this end bit, and now here we were without food or fresh clothing, and here was me, knowing their secret and very much in their way. Look here, said Trudge. There's no use us going on like this and wasting any more time here. We'd best get away as soon as possible. The only thing is your clothes. Pity you couldn't have swum in them. You can't appear in the village yonder like that. You'd attract attention. His eyes wandered from ferret face to me, when the resentful look on his face suddenly disappeared. I've got it, he cried. This sailor fellow's been a thundering nuisance to us. To make up for what he has done, he shall lend you his clothes. I protested at once. What was I to do if they took my clothes, I asked. And what was I to tell my captain about my missing suit when I rejoined my ship? But none of them seemed to take any notice of what I was saying. How about my captain? I said. Say you went bathing and left your clothes on the beach and they got stolen, grinned the fat man. Say you had a fire in your house and they got burnt, laughed the tall man. Tell him the truth, if you dare, sneered Ferret Face. Aye, if you dare, echoed Trudge. But don't waste any more of our time. Off with your clothes now, as quick as lightning, unless you want us to give you a little help. He advanced in a threatening manner. But I'd had just about enough of their bullying by this time. Suddenly I shot out my foot and kicked the lantern over, and we were plunged in darkness. Black Jack kicked violently out at the fire-irons and sent them clattering down on the hearth. There was a moment's confusion, and I could hear them stumbling about and falling over each other, which he illustrated by throwing two or three chairs on top of one another. In that moment I darted out of the cave and down the shore like a madman. They were after me like a pack of hounds. On, on I ran, till I came to the boat by the water's edge. The tide had risen higher and was touching her. I gathered all my strength and with a tremendous push got her afloat in the water. So excited was Black Jack becoming that the noise he was making was truly deafening. As he uttered the last words, he pushed the table violently across the room, and it crashed into the sideboard. Some crockery on it toppled over and came smashing to the ground. Jenny jumped to her feet. Black Jack took no notice of anything, but, turning round, seized an umbrella near at hand and waved it aloft. I leapt into the boat. He leapt into the air coming down with a thud so tremendous that Uncle Nickle in the kitchen below started up in concern. Aunt Abby, who had heard the crockery breaking, was already halfway up the stairs. Seizing a couple of oars, I got away from the shore. 
It was a hard battle. The tide, still rising, was trying to carry the boat into land again. I fought desperately. Meanwhile, Trudge, realising what had happened, waded out in the water, trying to reach me. The tall man plunged in also. I pulled with all my might. Then I saw that Trudge was swimming. Nearer he came and nearer. Then his hand shot up and he caught hold of the side of the boat. I lifted one oar and brought it down, crash on the back of his head, and with a cry of rage he let go. The umbrella was brought down on the back of a chair with such force that it snapped in two. But this was Black Jack's last bit of damage, for at that moment the door flew open and Aunt Abby appeared, followed by Uncle Nickel and a cluster of excited servants. He turned and swam ashore, and that was the last I saw of Silas Trudge. I hoisted my sail and got away. Black Jack stopped and gazed at the crowd in the open doorway with amazement. "'What's the matter?' he asked. "'That's what we've come to find out,' said Aunt Abby, throwing up her hands in dismay as she saw the wrecked state of the room. Then Black Jack seemed to come to himself and realise things. "'Oh, I say, shipmate, did I do all this?' he said. "'Well, only telling a little story, ma'am.' he said apologetically to Aunt Abby. "'I'll pay up for all the breakages, and I'm very sorry, ma'am.' "'Only telling a little story,' gasped Aunt Abby. "'It was a lovely story,' said Jenny, clasping her hands together. "'A very expensive story, I should call it,' said Aunt Abby, looking despairingly around the room. End of chapter 9